It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And I am delighted that you made it to class this morning. So excited to have on Sunday Civics for the very first time. Actually, I have something for him before he joins us. I'm going to start where he ends. I ain't never really gone. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? We got Clay Kane on the show. Thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Eljoy Williams. Happy, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday, y'all. Hope y'all are feeling good. Birds flying high. You know the deal. I ain't never really gone, and here I am. So I'm so happy to be here on this Sunday. I've said this to you on Twitter. I love the closing of your show very, very much. Yeah, it's it's kind of accessible because, you know, and you're when you're in media, you're never really gone. You know, you're on social media, you're on the streets, you're on TV, you're on radio, you're on the YouTube, whatever you are, you're just you're accessible. You're doing the work. So I ain't never really gone. I'm here. <laughs> I ain't going nowhere here. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to start where I begin with every guest that comes to the show for the first time. And I want you to share with us the story of your first civic action. Wow. You know, it's kind of uh, it's it's disappointing and it's sad because I was one of those people. I grew up in Philadelphia where I didn't believe in voting. I thought it was bullshit. I thought it was all a joke. And with all due respect to folks that I grew up with, that's what we were taught. We just taught that it didn't really matter. You know, we're complaining about our schools, but we're not voting. We're complaining about being locked up in 1990s Philadelphia before the crime reform bill. We're not voting. So I'm really embarrassed to say that. And I understand why some people think that way, because you're programmed to think that way. You're taught to think that way. It's it, it because the other side isn't taught that. The white evangelical side, they're not taught that. They're taught to vote. They're taught that voting is Christ-like. And I just wasn't taught that. I wasn't taught that at all. So I was just kind of a kid just wandering around. But the funny thing is, I would go out and protest. Okay. I think my first protest was for Mumia. The mm. uh, he's still on death row right now. You know, he was accused of of killing a police officer in Philadelphia. That was my first protest. And I was on the streets protesting, but I wasn't voting. And I'm not proud of that at all. Uh, my, I was eligible to vote in 95. My first mm-hmm. presidential election is 96. I didn't vote. I think about all the people that were running for office, local areas in West Philadelphia, that I didn't vote at all. So. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I know a lot of people are taught that. The reason why I began voting, it wasn't until I was 24 years old and I was in New York and I saw those towers fall on 9-11. And it just shook my world. It just, it just, uh, it broke my heart. I had a lot of friends after that who were at the World Trade Center and they saw people jumping from buildings 
And they've never been the same since, my friends who saw that kind of trauma. And I remember seeing President Bush reading, what was it, My Pet Goat for seven minutes. And I said, oh no, I'm not, no, I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna tell every single person to vote. I'm gonna make sure that I show up. Like this is unacceptable. And of course, I saw Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 that had a big impact on me. And the reason why it had an impact on me, I remember a black soldier in the documentary saying, I'm not going to go over there and kill other brown people. Mm-hmm. And I was triggered thinking about, thinking about school, thinking about what I learned, the little bit I knew about Muhammad Ali, him saying the same thing during Vietnam. So I began voting. I enrolled in the college. I also thought college was a joke. Mm. You know, I was some pseudo revolutionary. I was, I was, it was <laughs> bullshit. I was, it was dumb. It was we dumb. all had our phases. Right, we right, all right. had our phases. Right. And we're around the same age. And yeah. so we, had, we all had that phase where it's just like, F the system. Well, I whatever. believe that. Oh, mm-hmm. yo, I was really into Octavia Butler, uh, Parable of the Talents, Parable of the Sower. I wanted Acorn. I wanted this to go and build. Like, I was about all my friends, whatever, whatever, whatever. And mind you, we're in this system. You have to work to survive. You have to work to get by. You are in this system. And there's no escaping that. You know, Lerone Bennett Jr. would talk about the road not taken. There was roads that should have been taken way before us, and it wasn't. So then I began getting civically engaged, and I was a Black Studies major, and it changed my life. Mm-hmm. It changed my life. I-, I knew bits and pieces. I was always a bit of a reader, but it really changed my life. And from there, voting in every single election. And I will talk to young people and say, listen, I understand why you think that way, but don't be like me, right? You know, you don't want to get caught up in this system and then say, wow, why didn't this judge hear me? That judge was appointed by somebody. You know this. All they do is interpret the law. And I got to tell you something. It is by the grace of God that I did not get caught up in that system. I made a lot of mistakes as a young person. I, ha- I was with a, you know, a crowd. I would run from the police. When I hear about young black men getting shot, I can recall three or four friends of mine in Philadelphia, we'd see, we would call it Mag. Uh, we'd call it um, Alice. Mag is coming, Alice is coming, and we'd run. I mean, I've been that person. So it is by the grace of God that I am here. And I, from that point on, I said, I will be civically engaged. And then I had to, in college, I had to learn civics, but I was never taught civics. I was never taught. I barely even knew how a bill became a law. I didn't know any of this kind of stuff. I had some amazing teachers at Rutgers University, uh, Dr. Zain Abdullah, who completely changed my life. Uh, Dr. Wendell Holbrook changed my life. And they saw a little bit of potential in me. And that just, that was really important. And from that point on, my, my life changed. I felt like I understood my uh, roots better. And I understood it beyond the thing where, oh, they, you know, they died for your right to vote. No, I understood it in a way of just really knowing the intricacies of history and understanding more than dying for the right to vote, dying for the right to live, mm-hmm. right? So at that point, I changed. And listen, I try 
and not shame people for not voting. <laughs> I try, but I would tell you something. It's hard, right? But I would tell you something. Nobody shamed me. Nobody said to me, you dumb, whatever, whatever. Nobody said that to me at all. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, you know, there was other things going on. And so now, you know, thankfully, my cousins uh, who are still in Philly, they're all voting. They're on it. They, they get it. So I feel like I could be wrong. You know, youth turnout is so low. But I feel like because of social media, maybe there also there was no access to some of these things. Like I, it was, accessibility was just difficult. There was nothing on a phone. You know, I, I had like a pager, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, so those are the things that really had an impact on me. And um, that's where I, where I am today. So Sorry. You know, I had a whole show um, <laughs> called the voter blame game and really about how people shame people into voting and connected to that recently when the autobiography of Malcolm X was released on Audible and we were tweeting and talking about the impact that that book had. And one of the questions was, what is one of his quotes that resonates with you, you still hold? And he, I'm going to paraphrase, mentions, there was a time you didn't know what you know. Yeah. Um, and so and how you are going to build a nation, how are you going to invest in people if you don't impart knowledge in a way that doesn't shame people for what they don't know? And so I try to keep that in perspective. And even as a political strategist, it don't even work to turn out voters. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not a, a winning strategy, particularly when you're trying to expand. There yeah. was a point you didn't know about civics. There was a point you didn't know how a bill becomes a law. And even though you know that, and it's hard sometimes for organizers and others, I see the conversation happen on Twitter sometimes, even just to bring in your point on this, as we we're talking about like these rappers and Ice Cube and all of them, like people immediately just like, oh, they should know better. And I'm like, really? Because did they know better? <laughs> like right. before they like engaged in this conversation, <laughs> did I really trust somebody who was like, doing this to like then now they have like some contract and some plan for me and they didn't even talk to me right they didn't even talk to you <laughs> they didn't even talk to me we talk about politicians doing that all the time where they're creating laws and payment and just like oh they're doing it for them and not us because there was no engagement how do you think that's not gonna be the same thing right with like these rappers and folks like cutting deals for themselves like over that and why do we put so much investment in that well, you know, one of the things I always say that it really is a way to infantilize the black community. Uh, I, I've, I say this all the time. When there was that issue of homophobia in the NFL about three, four, five years ago, they didn't call on Rosie O'Donnell. They didn't call on Neil Patrick Harris. They called on, on GLAAD. And GLAAD came down there and they had a 52-point plan strategy on what the NFL is going to change. Not what they might change, but what they will change. Right. When there is an issue in the Jewish community, I've said it before, they don't call Barbara Streisand. They go to the ADL or they go to a Jewish organization. And it's when, when there's an issue in the Latin community, they ain't calling Ricky Martin. They you know, but for our community, and it really is a way to infantilize us. They go to a celebrity because they know if they have L. Joy Williams in the room, she's going to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a random, you know, chit chat conversation with some pop star. If they're gonna have Loree Daniel Favors in the room, she is going to hold you accountable or Rashad Robinson, Color of Change, whatever the case may be. They're gonna hold you accountable to re demanding real tangible things. So it's easy. It's, an, it's, a, it's a way, we'll go to the celebrity because they're easier to deal with. 
And then the celebrity is outraged that, well, why can't they go to me? Well, you think because you're a celebrity that you're somehow anointed. And this idea that because people have money and they have fame, that they have intelligence or they have political intelligence. It's a really dangerous road that, that we go down and they use celebrities to try and clean up their racism. Yeah. Well, look, Ice Cube gave us some ideas, right? And with Ice Cube, I've, only, I've been a little bit confused. I've just wondered, does he know what he's doing or does he think he's sincere? Like, is he a pawn? Because there's reportedly, allegedly, 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 some money with the big three that was cleaned up next to there's some kind of Steve Bannon connection. There's a lot of details around. It's kind of confusing, but I just, I don't know what to believe anymore. Like, do you, are you sincere about this? I mean, Kanye is an opportunist, clearly. Kanye has his own issues. But are you sincere? When Diddy said, hold the vote hostage in April, in April, when we had a robust primary with candidates who had black agendas, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, their agendas point by point for the black community. You can't deny that. I look at someone like Jamal Bowman, who was running in Diddy's former district. How, although Jamal did win, thank God, against that Elliot Engel. But how amazing would it have been if, if Diddy would have did an Instagram live in the middle of the primary with Jamal Bowman? You know, I, I don't, you know, there's local people running in Cali. How amazing would it have been for Ice Cube to do an Instagram live with someone locally in Cali? Like, why are they showing up now? And many lifetimes ago, I used to do celebrity, whatever, journalism, entertainment. And what, 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 with celebs, what I always saw, that things are very calculated. Very, mm -hmm. rarely anything was organic. So I'm, I'm deeply confused why a couple weeks before an election, you have Ice Cube babbling about why aren't they doing this when your contract doesn't even mention black women? <laughs> you want to hear my theory? Tell what's your theory? theory? Tell me. Tell me. Tell so me. my theory is one of the things that I've noticed about the GOP over the last couple of years is this: they keep getting this attack from black conservatives about this lack of engagement and outreach to communities of color and particularly to black folks. I've seen the direct connection in GOP folks, or they're like we can tap target black men. We can mm. target black men and Latino men, particularly in the last, I would say, couple, four or five years, mm. um, where you have seen this push mainly for black women's political voice and we being loud. I've seen it going across the country. I've been higher where black men come into higher heights where the organization I'm a part of that invests in black women's political leadership, where they're like, but what about black men? And why y'all not organizing for black men, right? And I'm like, when y'all get an organization together and y'all do some stuff, we'll come work, like we'll come rock out with you. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Why we got to organize y'all? Right. But I see that on the ground. Like I see men either not participating or that and but I then see outreach particularly to Black men and that economic uh, situation or you're being talked down to by women and the man is ahead of the household, that conservative kind of thing, eking in those conversations. And it's not only an online conversation, but it's happening in communities where I would have a brother who um, is a member of Brooklyn NAACP, this is a couple of years ago, he's still a member, come to me after a meeting and say, I really like the way you run the branch. It's really like inclusive things, but I can't help but think you're taking up a place for a man. So those are the kind of 
that's the kind of fracture that exists that allows the opportunity for, and, and, and I feel like that's what's happening. And I see these polls. So what I think this is, is that somebody decided, well, we can, to your point, let's go pick um, some individual celebrities and leaders that we can be a part of this conversation. And then that breaks it. Because now what you see happen, well, we don't see our black men talking about stuff. So now we're gonna put him at a table to mm. talk about his agenda. Like yeah. organizations ain't been putting out an agenda for the years. <laughs> like like for Color years. of Change has a thorough, thorough black agenda. Yeah. Like yeah. National Urban League don't put out an right. agenda and exactly. say black America every year, right? right? <laughs> let, let me ask you this. I'd be curious to know your perspective on this. So I feel like, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember this vaguely. I didn't hear it a lot, but I remember when Obama had MBK, My Brother's Keeper Initiative, mm. specifically geared towards black men. And I remember people saying, what about black women? Mm. And if I'm wrong, correct me. And, I, and I, I feel like there was this moment where black men felt like they were specifically being talked to. I feel like black women have, have been ignored in politics for years. It's mm -hmm. just the past four or five years mm -hmm. where folks are paying a little bit of attention. Just a teensy wins. It's, it's not a lot, you know, just because you have some MSNBC talking, that isn't fully attention. But I feel like there's a little bit of attention being paid. And I, I felt like when I was growing up, I was hearing, again, not a lot, but a, a bit more of attention towards black men. And now mm -hmm. for the first time, maybe, maybe arguably, maybe the tables are a little bit churned and now there's outrage. Yeah. And would you agree with that analogy that I remember hearing a focus on black men, especially during the Obama years, and I, I believe he got some backlash for that. And yeah. now that it's churned just a bit, we're mad? Like, yo, we're mad now that black women, they're saying we must give black women a voice. We must listen to black women. How does that affect you as a man? Don't you have a mother? Don't you have a sister? Don't you have a cousin? Like, yo, let's let black women lead. Like, let's give it a try. So I remember that. And now we're here where it's like, now no one's paying attention to me. Now, mind you, I will say the messaging with Democrats, they don't have great messaging. They're not, they're not great at marketing. You know, I always say Obama wasn't a good bragger. Like Obama should have been brag, brag, brag. When Biden gets attacked for the crime reform bill, I want him to say, yes, there were mistakes. But here, here's the list of things that I did under the Obama administration to correct criminal justice. Uh, the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, ending mandatory minimum sentencing, that's huge. Consent decrees, I can go on and on and on. But that's never said, I'm like, yo, make it plain. Where are y'all bullet points? But yeah, that's kind of my theory that there's been a bit of a shift, not that much, but a bit of a shift. And I guess somehow, because women are getting a little bit more, black women a little bit more, um, attention, they're feeling left out. Do you agree with that? Am I, am I seeing that to the right way? Let me know. It's part of, it, it's part of my um, thing. I have this, um, I call the theory of fragile ass feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like Beautiful theory. Did Einstein do that? <laughs> and it's not, it, it, it happens, I think, from a standpoint of, even when you talk about like Black Lives Matter, well, all lives matter. Like, right. uh, like it's this knee-jerk reaction that because somebody's needs are being addressed and um, your name 
or your identity is not explicitly included, it means you don't matter. It means um, that there should be no attention on you. It means um, that we're done with you or things like that. And that's a, a human thing because white folks do it. When yeah. we when people talk about Black Lives Matter, it's like, we're not talking about, like, we're not talking about you right now. Right. <laughs> like, right. I don't get upset. Um, and I use as an example, growing up a church kid, obviously my views on uh, well, maybe not obviously, but growing up a church kid, my views on LGBTQ and transgender completely right, different, different, much different than it is now, right? And when I see conversations happening on social media or campaigns, particularly targeting transgender um, women and them asserting um, uh, their right to life and sort of not being uh, uh, abused or discriminated against. Um, and people are just like, and we're women too. And they're just like, but what about me? I'm a woman and I should be different. I was like, they're not talking about us right now. Right. They, are like, they, are, they have a particular perspective and then being physically assaulted um, or killed and talking about their their identity, it takes nothing from my womanhood. Exactly. From them yes. being able to, it takes nothing from me. Right. right? Like, from right. Me, like you can't take it. So to see someone say, if they're talking about white Appalachian, you know, people and sort of their struggle, I'm like, hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. they should be right because they are talking about their plight. Yeah. However, in the theory of fragilized feelings, oh. like if you have not done the work internally to say just because we are focusing on another group at this moment and highlighting their issues, it doesn't mean that mine aren't valid. And we've created we in terms of America. Mm -hmm. created probably globally created this thing of scarcity and that we only have time to address one people's issue at a time and we only have the financial resources to address one thing at a time mm -hmm. we have to that's another break like in terms of our civic peace to be like yeah that's bullshit we do have the resources to address all of these things. We do have the ability to make sure that everybody has an equitable opportunity in, in this country. And so being able to break that in your mindset that you are not compete, I am not competing with an LGBTQ man in terms of his rights over mine as a black woman. There is right. no competition. There can be this organizing that we do collectively to make sure there is equity and resources for everyone. And that requires breaking that American exceptionalism bullshit that we've been, you know, brought up to believe that we can only focus on one thing and that we only have, I only got $10. Meanwhile, right. y'all got the whole vault right. <laughs> like behind you. Right. No, absolutely. It's, it's the oppression Olympics. It's very, very dangerous. I, I, I completely agree. I see it even when it comes to, like you said, LGBT issues that there are some there are some men who feel like some some straight men who feel like oh why are LGBT folks being talked about so much why are there so many you know gay people in hip hop I'm like you got little Nas and Frank Ocean <laughs> that's a lot they you know they can't deal they can't even stand next to y'all <laughs> in the same room how, and how be, does, can they breathe the same air right they're different air for straight men over the right <laughs> I'm like you got two you got two i just it's it, but it, that's why it's important to have this conversation so we could check ourselves i've had to be checked as well too you know yeah. we could check ourselves but we as black people black men black women whether gay straight tra whatever the case may be i always say we're not a monolith but we have to be a monolith against white supremacy that's the one thing we have to be a monolith against that's the one thing we have to mobilize against and one, one of my favorite things I always say that 
1868, sadly, black women couldn't vote. In 1868, we had 80% voter turnout. In 1868, I can't even imagine what 1868 looks, feels, smells like, right? We were able to elect over 2,000 black folks, black men, all throughout the South, right? Can we at least have 62%, 63? (laughs) Hey, a nice 66% in 2020? That's what I'm talking about. And the lesser of the two evils, can you imagine voting in 1868? Can you imagine? I mean, Ulysses S. Grant was pretty good on Reconstruction, terrible to Native Americans, but still, like, can you imagine voting them? Those, those are the really less of the two evils, right? But they said, wait a minute. What is the community? Who is the political party that is going to empower me and, and allow me to have power and build community? And that is the beginnings of Reconstruction being successful for those 12 or so years is because we had Black folks in political office. So my, my, my plan, my agenda has always been the third party thing I would love for it to happen, but I don't know what's going to happen right now. But I want to see us infiltrate the Democratic Party the way the Tea Party folks did. A lot of folks who were in the Tea Party part, in the, there, there were Tea Party folks, the Republican Party. They're now elected officials. They're let's, now the mainstream of yeah, the Republican Party. Let's let's vote in more Jamal Bowmans. Let's vote in more Cameron Webbs in Virginia. Let's vote in more Chevron Jones and Malcolm Kenyatta's and more Ilhan Omar's and more AOCs. Vote out those old, those old guard Democrats and let's take it over and put in real progressive ideas. That's what I want to see. That's, that's my thing. Let's infiltrate it. Republican Party, there's no winning there. But let's put in people who really have our ideas at the forefront and we can kick out the Elliott Engels. We can kick out those folks and say, hey, here's a new, a new crop of people who believe in abolishing the Electoral College, who believe that qualified immunity should, should be no more, who believe in a higher minimum wage, who believe in making black history a national mandate, having cross-cultural education. We have to vote in those people, like our souls depended on it. So, yeah. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break because you briefly mentioned one of my favorite periods to study, the Reconstruction, and you wrote something recently about it. And so when we come back, I want to talk a bit about that. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civics with Clay Kane. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I will let you know. Who Welcome back to Sunday Civics. It's your girl, Eljoy Williams. And I'm having a wonderful conversation with the amazing Clay Kane. Once the Rona is passed, we can really hang out. We're not real friends until we can have a knockout drag out, <laughs> like about some historic absolutely so i'm looking forward to that conversation we real friends when that happens exactly exactly (laughs) so you wrote something you wrote something recently which those who listen to the show often know i talk a bit about the comparison of not only the reconstruction era but also talking about the progressive era as well and so i want you to talk a bit about the piece you wrote about the civil rights act of 1875 Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people think that there was just one Civil Rights Act, 1964. There were several. And the one of 1875 barred discrimination with public accommodations, right? And I want you to think of what that looks like. Basically saying that you can't go into a restaurant. You can't use the bathroom. You can't go into a store. Uh, Folks saying you can't be here, right? So it it ended discrimination. This is an, an important Civil Rights Act. October 15th, 
137 years ago this week, 1883, the United States Supreme Court said that Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional. They decided we don't need it. They said that, uh, I believe it was Judge Harley, said that, that it was granting black people special rights. Mm -hmm. Unconstitutional. So later on in the month, there was this uh, meeting of pastors and, and black leaders in Washington, DC. And Bishop Henry McNeil Turner said it was one of the most barbarous moments of American history, taking away these rights of black people, that it left them naked, that it left them shamed, that it left them with no way to fight back. And then this is the domino effect. One might say it really is the compromise of 1877 when the Republicans and the Democrats just said no more reconstruction, leave the Negro problem in the South. But this actual law from the Supreme Court being deemed unconstitutional would change everything. By the 1890s, every Southern state would have a state constitutional convention to basically stop black men from voting. Then Plessy, Vergus, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the, the lie of, uh, of separate but equal. I mean, then the horrors that would come after that, the rise of the KKK. And then finally in 1964, we have another Civil Rights Act. But, and, and you really, uh, folks go to the article, it's on the New York Daily News. Read, click on the links within the article and you could read the full speeches from mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, from Bishop Turner. It will bring tears to your eyes. I was talking to, to uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates about this it'll break your heart because they saw the terror that was about to come. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this because in my opinion, where we are right now is, is very similar to post reconstruction. And when you see what's happening with the Supreme Court, we have a confirmation hearing of a woman who said that she didn't believe the N word created a hostile work environment. And she has two adopted black children. We have a conservative leaning, not even conservative leaning, Trump leaning court, right? And that's what happened in 1883, that it was such, and I know folks thinking, oh, wasn't it all conservative back then? To some degree it was, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, the Republicans at the time, they were allegedly the party of civil rights. But this is what happens, just, just by it being challenged by the Supreme Court. And listen, we're under an administration right now that doesn't even believe that there's systemic racism, that believes there's more voter fraud than voter suppression, that has someone like Ben Carson, who was allegedly trying to get the word discrimination out of the Fair Housing Act. So while folks are thinking about same-sex marriage uh, being, being destroyed, Roe v. Wade being destroyed, what we should also worry about is those three key acts, 1964 Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that was signed shortly after Dr. King was assassinated. I'm telling you, those are all up for grabs. These rights are fragile. And the black folks 137 years ago this week, I'm sure many of them didn't see it coming, mm -hmm. considering that over 100, uh, nearly 180,000 black men fought in the Civil War for, for freedom in 1865. So they're, they're going to think, well, you know, my God, uh, 
This is not going to happen less than 20 years later. The Civil Rights Act is not that long ago. So I wrote this to say, unlike 1883, it was a much more, it's not as a, we have a much more diverse electorate today, right? Today, we have black women can vote. We have uh, people from, from, you know, immigrants can vote. Uh, we have a much more diverse electorate. So I'm saying this to say, we got to show up. We've got to show up November 3rd. It's not about, oh, well, I don't want, you know, Democrats there. You know, I'm tired of trying to save Democrats. I'm talking about saving ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about Democrats right now. And as somebody who was degreed in black studies, we've seen this before. And it's so dangerous where this court is. And you know this, the amount of civil rights that Trump has rolled back, you may not be, it's just happening right under your nose. Even something as simple as ending the National Task Force on Policing. This yeah. executive order saying that we can't have this education that, uh, that falls into racial and uh, sexual stereotyping from Trump, that threatens HBCUs. That threatens HBCUs from getting federal funding. So I wrote it to, to, for us to reflect at the time only 4 million African-Americans were in this country to reflect on 137 years ago and how terrified they were. And they had a right to be terrified because what was happening at the time was horrific. But what happened after that would be, would be even worse. So that's why I wrote it. And it's just so important to look back. Folks forget about Reconstruction and the, t the, the, the years after that. And particularly, uh, there's a lot to be studied from the Re Reconstruction era, particularly how, like, what the country could look like when you have full in enfranchisement and equity across the board, right? Where you have these alliances of Black folks and poor white folks coming yeah. together to implement laws in their state and local community that impact all of them. And when I... I first had a conversation. I met Elizabeth Warren. This was like a couple of months before she announced for president. And I was considering working for a presidential campaign at the time. And I got to have tea with her in her apartment in DC. And we had a conversation and I was particularly mentioning her comments about racial inequity and people in poverty, whether they're black folks, whatever. And I talked to her about that if you can chart throughout the history, any time that poor Black and white folks got together and organized. It was always rich white people that came in. That's right. And they used race as the wedge, right? Wealthy people understand the power that people can have in terms of organizing coalitions. I understand that you have the same economic constraints that I do. And whether I am a farmer from Mexico, whether I'm a you know um, black man from South Carolina, um, or this, that we can bind together, right, and demand better wages together. And so instead of what the Republican Party is doing now, because I've read, so for those who don't know, I actually read. <laughs> and so I don't just look at what y'all tweeting about, about mm -hmm. Trump's platinum plan and things like that. I actually read it. It's yes. only two pages. Two and pa it's bullet, and bullet points. points. It's more like a page <laughs> right? and a half. Right. So um, I, I see the subtlety of the racial divide and the ethnic divide of saying we're going to do an immigration policy that benefits black male jobs, right, and unemployment is saying, 
oh, the Mexicans are taking your job, right? right? That's that subtle thing, right? Right, you know, like an old school thing, rather than us investing and saying, look, brother from Mexico is trying to eat and feed his family just like I am, we can bind together and demand higher wages from this mm-hmm. entity, right? And that's what was used in the Reconstruction era, where as soon um, as we have this break and people are, they can get elected, they can participate in politics, now we can bind together and organize and do something that's equitable across the board. Up oh, here come wealthy white people, but do right. you really want to be like that Black Negro? <laughs> and if we look to that past, there is also lesson in how people will try to divide and then what will happen, the violence that happens, the setback for the country that happens for people of color and particularly for Black folks that happens when we do that type of restriction. And as you mentioned, that people want to be, you're all American. So why are you you know, focusing on race? We don't need this law, but right. then be come back after it's repealed and say, well, why should HBCUs exist? What's right? Like, why is this like, what is the separation? Why right. does it have to be something around? Like, that is the purpose, right? Yeah. I would love for this country to get to a point where the NAACP doesn't have to exist. Sure. Right? I would love to get to a point where people have equitable resources, where we don't have these divides, and people, and, you know, just imagine what we can do as human beings without that fight, without that consistent fight of just fighting for your humanity and your identity. We'd probably be evolved into a whole other species by then, but we're stuck. Yeah. We're stuck in this place. And going back to Reconstruction, going back and looking at those political movements, because they just keep repeating themselves. And we have the power like, to really invest in how do we break out. That's why I can't believe in constitutional originalism. That's why I can't believe like in any of that because we have to evolve. Like that humanity has to evolve. And until we break those things, we will be forever stuck. That's why the aliens ain't coming. That's why the aliens are good. (laughs) They're good. You know, know, (laughs) one of the things I always say is that um, I, I know in my soul that if Reconstruction wasn't destroyed, this country would be in a much different space. You know, slavery is, of course, horrific, and it's, it's terrible, and it's the, the, the super exploitation of the most exploited. It's race, it's capitalism, right? But I think what really, really, really damaged us to really being able to build after that, it really is sharecropping. It is Jim Crow. It is the end of Reconstruction. That's really it. That's really when they put in these laws and policies that the residue of it is still around today. If they would have let Reconstruction succeed, we might be like a Norway or a Finland or a Denmark. I I don't know. I don't know. Then the propaganda machine, the uh, lost cause, the daughters of the Confederacy, you know, all these things we're saying, if y'all don't know what I encourage y'all to just Google, you'll look it up, check it out, read about it. The Lost Cause was basically churning the narrative of the South to say, oh, well, it was just a war about states' rights. That's all it was. And some of the textbooks, the origins of those textbooks begin with the Daughters of the Confederacy. <clears throat> so we will be even in a much different place if Reconstruction would have been successful. And you're so right. You're so right that it really is the white ruling class, the white elite. Go back to Bacon's Rebellion, 1676. 
When those rich white folks saw poor white folks, Native Americans and, and, and black folks rising up, they were like, oh, hold up, we gotta stop this. Let, okay. Wait, wait, who can we get? <laughs> right, white people, come over here. We'll give you about two pennies, we'll give them nothing, and you could serve on a jury. And you'll be good. (laughs) Like, you'll be good. Have you seen the documentary about the Gilded Age on PBS? I haven't, no. The Gilded Age. It's a, yeah, it's a a documentary on PBS. It's called The Gilded Age. In the documentary, they get to a point where we're talking about all of the, the Carnegie, sort of all of the big wealthy people. That's when we had oligarchs and had this like extreme, like, we think wealth gap is extreme now. Think about that particular period. (laughs) Yeah. And again, Black folks and white um, working class and poor folks. And was just like, we getting paid too little and we do like whatever. And they were bucking up against these working conditions and cre- trying to create unions with getting better conditions. Carnegie was like, uh, and folks was like, who can we get <laughs> to go down? And they really sent people to bust it up. And again, using race, you don't want to work next to a black man, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want, and so the, again, reiterated that divide and like I can get that extra dollar that's good for me and my family right rather than if we can work together and continue to work together we can probably get 10 whole dollars for everybody we'll be right back how can it be Welcome back to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. Your civics teacher is back with you. A question. I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. I say this on air all the time. As somebody who met with Senator Warren and, uh, you know, you had her on your show. One of the things I get confused by is I was saying a little bit earlier, but I want to ask you directly, is that we had candidates in 2016 that had incredible black agendas. We just. We had it. They were there. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Secretary Castro, that brother's black agenda was flawless. And he also passed the purity test. He didn't have any scandals. He didn't have any racial hiccups, nothing. Uh, Senator Warren, the way she spoke about racial justice, her plan for racial justice, damn. I, I, I love that, that's, that, that Senator Cory Booker had baby bonds. Yep. So what does it mean when we have candidates who have a black agenda, and now I hear all this talk in the general election, black agenda, black agenda, what does it mean when we have these candidates who have it, but we're not supporting them? That, that I, 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 can't, I can't figure it out because it's there so, from black people, from black candidates at, yeah. at, that, at that. Okay. So I'm going to do a mix of political strategist hat <laughs> and cultural piece or whatever. The, so there's one um, issue and it's a big juggernaut and that's Trump. And so you have to, we then have to imagine disconnected from us who are involved, engaged and sort of thing, whatever, in terms of a voter's mindset of if I want the country to move in a different direction, I see this Trump machine. I see this. And so my thought process is not, what is in the best interest of me who has the best plan and all of that, it's more of who can beat Trump. Mm. 
Mm. I believe that we allow him to suck so much out of our discourse. And so now even we can't even focus on what's in our best interest. We're like, what is, how do we beat him? Again, it becomes this orbit around him rather on what's best for the country to move forward. And so that even in this election cycle, it was difficult to think about what is in my best interest? What are these plans? What are these things? And how do I want to move the country forward? And I think because of that Trump orbit, it was difficult, even in the Democratic primary, to get that national conversation because media is focused on how to beat Trump. Because what you're seeing from candidates that what resonates is how to beat Trump, because you're seeing ads is how to be that. So you never get to the journey conversation um, to end up to the point of how do I want, what do I want to, where do I see myself and where I see the country? Look at the ads that Joe Biden has done from a month ago, two months ago, to now is vote for dignity, vote for hope, right? It's the end conversation, right? And taking folks through the journey of this is where I want to go. This is aspirational. People vote aspirationally, negatively and positively. And be wealthy. So when I get to that point, I want to not pay taxes too. <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, do it, do that as well. So it, I, I agree that I personally, I liked Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, and Kamala Harris. Those were my three. I call Cory Booker America's vice principal um, <laughs> because he has this like loving thing. It's just like your vice principal that always wanted you to do well, <laughs> but I liked his plan as well. And I think we have to get people comfortable also with those things to ask for. Just think about how we went from um, the last two elections, people even thinking in a possibility to ask for reparations and it'd be yeah. part of people's platform, yeah. right? That That is a evolution of, oh, I can ask for that, yeah. <laughs> right? Because people put it into the conversation and put it into their plan, right? And so those are the things. You even think about it now where people are talking about changing the electoral college or um, expanding the Supreme Court. They're like, oh, we can do, like, like people are confused or don't know we can do that, that's possible, right? Because they have not seen government move in a way that would better their lives, that would change that something from old to new. Mm. Well, I'm not, now I now want to ask you questions. <laughs> this is okay. your show. Let me stop. Let me stop. Let me stop. Go ahead. Go ahead. So Listen, I see now you got to have me on your show. Yes, yes, we, we got to. Like, I want to thank you so very much for um, taking the opportunity and I, I feel free to invite me. I'll come on anytime to continue the conversation and moving people to that your voice is important in our re democratic republic and that this is not something that should happen to you, that you should be um, participatory in this process. And going back to those history points that Clay talks about um, in his article this weekend, looking, the playbook don't change. It don't change. <laughs> it don't change. It's old um, time. It's old as time, old as this country, and yeah. even older, actually. And so we have to be vigilant and not keep the information to ourselves. So Clay, I'm going to ask you one last, besides your show, what yeah. are some strategies you think people can use or, or, or do to spread that information, even in their busy lives? I mean, of course, you know, we can all use social media, we can all use stuff like that. Um, you know, what, one of the things that I like to do uh, when I get some good information, I like to, I'll like go through a day and like do like five or six phone calls and spread that <laughs> to other people. Just chit chat like, yo, this is what I learned. Like, what do you think about this? 
I'm somebody that believes in the tribe or like the council. So there's a collective of people that I have with me that I like to share knowledge. Even when I publish an article, I have like somebody that I really trust to read it, right? So I think that when you find a gem, when you find some truth, uh, and you think it could liberate somebody else, you have to do whatever you can do to get that truth out there. And when you think of that, that really goes back to our roots of how folklore worked, of passing out, passing down knowledge, whether or not you knew how to read and write, whether or not you knew how to scribe, whatever you knew how to do, being able to pass that knowledge on. I mean, just think about this. Like this is in our blood. Think about this for a minute. There were people who were able to escape bondage just by somebody telling them, here are the directions you have to take. They have nothing to write down. They don't know how long the walk is going to be. I, I get lost everywhere. If I'm in a car, I'm going to get lost <laughs> within 15, 20 minutes. Like, I want you to think about that for a minute. The power in passing down this knowledge to escape bondage managed to free many of people. And we have the power to do that. It is so important to share. It is so important to say, hey, here is what I've learned. And in addition to that, I think for me, somebody where I didn't learn about my history at all, I didn't learn about it in any capacity. And so when I got that knowledge in college, you know, I have all of my books from college. I have all Same. of my papers from college. I go Same. back and reread that stuff. I go back and refresh that stuff. So you got to share that knowledge in any way that you can. You got to spread it in any way that you can. You got to make it plain. You got to make it plain if you can. So those are the things that I think of. And it's in our blood. I, I literally, you know, for my 40th birthday, I went to the Whitney Plantation in New Orleans. And we did the entire tour. It's emotional. It's amazing. I've always wanted to do that. And then I said, I said, where were the fields? Like, we're seeing all this. Where are the fields? And they go, oh, it's on the, it's on the other side. You know, go ahead and take a look at it. We don't really include it in the tour. It's just fields. And me and my friends, my, two friends I went with, we go to the fields. And we looked at it. They're empty now, obviously. And it looked like an ocean. And I said, if I were trying to escape, I wouldn't even know where to go. If we were trying to leave right now without our car, I wouldn't know where to go. So again, to think of that, just by passing the knowledge, folks manage to escape bondage. And that's really important. So those are the ways that I think about doing it. Those are the ways that I, I try and do it. Thank you so very much, Clay, Thank for uh, joining us. And I look forward to having you um, uh, back soon. Yeah. Can, can I say it? Can I close out with what I said? Okay, yes, you got to say it. <laughs> All right. I ain't never really gone. <laughs> and I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more of Sunday Civics. And I certainly look forward to having you back in class to take civic action. Have a good day. We are